Hey guys, Dave Riesinger here, and I'm so excited to share this word today with you. We are going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we've talked about the John Journal. If you've not got one, you can go to redeem.church, and we will send you a free copy. It's been really cool watching people diving into the Word every day and just letting God speak to them as they process this amazing Gospel that John wrote. Um, I have a treasure for you today. Actually, it's not me that has the treasure, but it's God through this scripture or this passage that we're going to talk about today. And I, I hope it hits you in the same way that it hit me. Um, this revelation, we call it in the Christian world, or some people call it a nugget. Some people call it a faith lesson. Um, I, I don't know what you want to call it, but it really transformed the way that I view God, the way I view his love and the way that I, I, I view my interaction with him. And so uh, I feel like this is like, have you ever seen those shows where somebody's remodeling a house and they tear down a wall and all of a sudden, bam, they, they come into cash, found like $30,000 in the wall? That's how I hope this is, you know? I hope that like in this study, you find some treasure that maybe you didn't expect. And so the title of the message today is My New Neighbor. Say that with me. My new neighbor. Now, just because I got a camera in front of me doesn't mean I can't see you. I can see you and you didn't say it. Let's try it one more time. My new neighbor. We're going to talk about a neighborhood and a neighbor that moved into this neighborhood and the implications that it has on our lives. We see the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of these Gospel writers starts Jesus at a specific place. So we have uh, Mark, he begins Jesus at 30 years old. If you open the book of Mark right now, you're going to see that Jesus starts with uh, the baptism and then his temptation in the wilderness. But then if you look, Matthew goes back a little bit further. Matthew, who's trying to connect with Jews, Jewish people and a Jewish audience, he says, you know what? I want to make the case that Jesus is from the line that the Messiah is supposed to come from. So if there's any doubt in a Jewish mind, he says, no, he starts with Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and follows the line all the way to Jesus. So there's a purpose for it. But then Luke, Luke outdoes Mark and Matthew. He goes back even further, and he goes to Adam. Uh, Luke was kind of like, hey, man, I want to I make the connection with Jesus, not just as uh, one from the line of Abraham, the promised line, but as a human being who is connected to the human race and he takes him back to the man God originally created who fell. Why? Because he wants to connect Jesus as the one who came as a man who would reverse the curse of Adam in the garden and become a new creation or allow us to become a new creation in him. So how do you go back further than Adam? Well, John does it. John one-ups all of them and he takes Jesus back to creation. We see in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, in the beginning, what's he doing here? He's quoting the book of Genesis 1.1. Now, this is a pretty bold move. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, Jesus, when he was called Jesus, that only started at his birth. What did we call Jesus before he was born? Now, they would have called him Yeshua, but we, we translate that and we say Jesus. But what was Jesus called before he was a human? Well, John just points it out right here. 
He's called the Word, or in Greek, the Logos. Now, this might sound technical, but I'm telling you, I'm about to drop a bomb that I really hope explodes in your heart and shows you the power of God's love and the wisdom of His Scripture in what He's teaching us here. Now, understand, in me setting this up, John is speaking to a Jewish audience and a Greek-speaking audience. Why does that matter? Because there are certain things that he would have said. And as you read through this journal and the, the Gospel of John, you're going to see symbols, you're going to see signs, you're going to see references, and you're going to hear words that might just pass over unless you pump the brakes and slow down and say, why did they react to that word that way? Why did people get ticked off when John said this? Or why did people seem to uh, demonstrate or manifest some incredible joy when John said this or Jesus said this? The reason is, is because this was an audience that had their uh, hearts and minds tuned to a language that was based on a culture that grew up studying the Torah, studying the Word of God. Or in the Greek-speaking world, there were words that meant things, okay? And the reason I say that is because we would look at this word and, and we would just say, oh, he's the word. Big deal. So a word is just a sound that comes out of your mouth that helps you explain a thought in your head. But it's much more than that. We have the same thing. Now let me just put this in, in our context. We have terminologies that people maybe in the Philippines wouldn't understand. People in China wouldn't understand. Unless you grew, in fact, people in America, if you're in a different generation, there are words and phrases that you don't get unless you have them explained to you. For instance, I walked into the church one day and there's this teenage boy and he's walking with his grandmother and he turns and he looks at this guy's shoes and he says to his grandma, he's like, yo, those shoes are filthy. And his grandma literally responds like, they look clean to me. She had no idea what the term meant. Filthy means, hey, they look cool. Here's a true story. I'm watching a movie with my mom and my sister back in the day. And uh, I'm not recommending this movie. I don't suggest you get it. There's, uh, there's some things in there that you're not going to see on Trinity Broadcast Network, all right? Um, <clears throat> things that you probably shouldn't watch. But this is in my pre-Jesus days. And it was a movie called Colors. And it was about gang life in Los Angeles. And uh, we're watching this movie. And I get the terminology. You know, I was following the hip-hop world and the rap world. And, and uh, I was kind of infatuated with that life. And, and my sister understood it. But my mom's sitting there watching. And there's a character in this movie. <clears throat> I think his name was Frog. He's like this older cholo, like, you know, OG, original gangster. And... And he, he keeps using this phrase that you hear in the streets, but he, he's, he calls everybody Holmes. Uh, Holmes is like another word for homeboy or homie. It could be like the way we call someone bro or brother. And uh, it could also be used <clears throat> aggressively against an enemy. Like, what's up, Holmes? But in this movie, my mom's watching and this dude's dropping lines like, you know, I don't know about this younger generation, Holmes. And what are they, Holmes? You know, do one, Holmes. If you watch the movie, you get the reference. But my mom, I can see her face just contorting the whole time. And she finally turns and she says, okay, wait a minute, I don't get this. Which one is Holmes, right? And me and my sister start cracking up because my mom was hearing the conversation without the context. So when we hear John dropping this word, Jesus, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We might pass by, but the audience that he was talking to, in the area that he was talking to, to this about, or writing this, they would have caught on to what it meant. Here's, here's the reason why. Because John, he was a disciple of Christ, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And this is where he lived out the rest of his life. So this would have been in Ephesus, or in Western Turkey. Now, why does that matter, and how does it connect with this word that he used to describe um, or identify Jesus in his original name or identity? If you look at the context, um, 600 years before he wrote this, um, there was a man that was famous for coining this phrase called Logos. It was a man named Heraclitus, and he is the father of science. If you look up the origins of science and who, who put science on the map, um, the name Heraclitus is going to come up. He lived in Ephesus in western Turkey where John is writing this most likely and for sure where this word originated or where this phrase originated. Now what it meant was the reason why. And so here's Heraclitus and, he, and he's fascinated with studying things and he wants to find out why things work. Now this is science. Science is observable evidence. Like you look at everything and you try and find out why does this thing look the way it looks? Study and ask the question, what is the reason why? What's the logos? That's the word. He spoke Greek. We would say word, he'd say logos, but it means the reason why. So he taught people, hey, we need to in animal life, we need to look for the reason why in the stars, in weather. We need to find the reason why a thing responds the way it does, the reason it grows the way it does, the reason it smells the way it does. This is science. It's to look for the reason why in every single thing through observable evidence. Now watch what John does here because this is fascinating. So Heraclitus, he, he, he coins this phrase and it takes off from there. And we even use it in our scientific terminology today. In every branch of science, we have this term. For instance, the study of life is what? It's biology or bios logos. Uh, the study of the way people think. Some of you watching this, you have a psychology degree. What is psychology? It, it is the, the study or the science of a person's psyche. Psyche logos or psychology. Um, animal, studying animal life, that's zoology or zoos logos. If you look at uh, uh, weather, meteorology, meteorology or meteor logos, it's finding out the reason why weather is the way it is. Now, here's what's so cool about this is that John makes a connection that Heraclitus fell short in. He was trying to find the reason why the world was the way it was. And John says this when he says, in the beginning was the word. He said, in the beginning was the Logos. Watch this. Jesus is the Logos. He's the reason why behind everything. I hope you caught that because it's like we just busted down a wall and found a pile of cash. This is treasure when you realize the identity of Jesus as we move into the next idea that um, Christ reveals. Let me read it again with this understanding. In the beginning 
was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. In the beginning was the reason why, the reason why or the meaning behind everything was with God and the meaning behind everything was God. And then verse two says, and he was with God in the beginning through him, through who? Through the Logos, through the reason why. All things were made and without him, nothing was made that, was, that has been made. So here's what John does. He boldly establishes Jesus' divinity, but then he, he beautifully transitions a few verses later into the humanity of Jesus. Now, this is where we get into the neighborhood thing, my new neighbor. So here's what he says in verse 14. He says, the word of God or the logos or the reason why behind everything became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Think about this. Jesus in the beginning creates everything with God. You even see the Trinity in creation. Remember it says that um, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep. So you see the spirit of God. And then in creation, it says that God said, let there be light and there was light. That's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, the Father, initiates, and He sends what? He sends His Word. He said. Jesus is the said. He's the Word. And when the Word is sent into action, the Spirit of God then joins and administrates and empowers that Word, and life happens. And then this, this, this Logos, this Word, becomes a person, takes on flesh and blood, and moves from heaven, streets of gold, down to this broken earth that you and I live in that's touched by viruses, touched by murder, touched by war. God could have stayed at a distance on his throne in heaven, in perfection, but the word of God showed up to our rescue in the human form of Jesus Christ. And what I love about this is that it demonstrates and it screams, God loves you and I. Look at the rest of this verse, it says, the word of God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So who just moved into my neighborhood? The reason why I exist just moved into my neighborhood. To show me the reason why I exist and to show me the reason why I need him. We have so many questions and we have so much confusion. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for answers. And you know who moved into our neighborhood? The answer, the reason behind every question and every mystery. The one who wipes away confusion by his presence, by his identity, and through his word because he is truth. All answers, even if we don't have the technical answer, there are still some mysteries but we have faith that because God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he manifested himself in love in the person of Jesus, and we know that God's intention for us is never evil, but only good, we know that even the things we can't answer, he does have the answer, and one day, what we see partially will be made clear to us. Let me drive this thing home, and then we'll close. Jesus moves into the neighborhood, and what is a neighborhood represent. You know, people are generally categorized or defined um, based on where they're from. Now, hopefully we don't do this. If, we, if we're mature, 
We don't say, hey, because this person lived here, then I'm gonna just assume this about them. But can we be honest? We, we tend to think a certain thing about people based on the neighborhood or the environment that they grew up in. Why? Because a neighborhood tends toward a demographic, right? So demographics will give you an idea of somebody's political bent, somebody's race, somebody's level of education. Um, a demographic or a neighborhood will give you a basic general understanding of what opportunities you might have in life or what opportunities m m you might not have in life. It might represent the way a certain group of people think, whether rich, poor, middle class, whether you know, uh, in, in China or America or India. There are certain things that we label or that we judge based on a person's neighborhood. Now watch this, Jesus moves into the neighborhood. And it's interesting what neighborhood he moves into and what it represents and what family he moves into because the neighborhood's made up of families, right? And so think about this. Go, go here with me. What image comes to your mind or what do you think or what feelings or if you're just being honest, what stereotypes jump up immediately when I name these neighborhoods, okay? Hilltop. Like what comes to your mind when you think of Hilltop, especially if you grew up in the Tacoma area. I know some of you live somewhere else. What about North End Tacoma? What about University Place? You know, what do you think? Do you, do you see a, a people group? Do you think of um, a demographic? And when you think of a demographic, what do you think of that demographic? Is there a positive feeling or a negative feeling? What about East Side Tacoma? What about like the gated community Madera off Gravelly Lake Drive? What about Tillicum and Woodbrook? that happen to literally be a rock's throw away from some of these very wealthy neighborhoods. What about Ruston or Spanaway, right? I was literally, about a week and a half ago, I was talking to some people that didn't know me, and they asked me the question, hey, where are you from? And just, I don't know why I said it, I just wanted to see their reaction, I kept a straight face, but uh, they said, yeah, I'm from here, I'm from Tacoma, and I said, yeah, I, I, uh, I was born and raised in Compton, and, uh, <laughs> It was so funny to watch their reaction. Literally, it was, there was like, the sh like what? It, what it, like, serious? The dude goes, really? Compton? And then I, I said, yeah, I was born and raised in Compton. He goes, wow, wow. And then I said, no, I'm just kidding. And, but, but you just wouldn't assume that this white boy would be raised in Compton. Here's my point. We have labels and opinions about neighborhoods, right? And I remember growing up, so I, I, I haven't thought of this in a long time, but I was thinking about in high school, and we used to label people based on their school. I went to Milwaukee High School, and we were known as the River Rats, okay? And we lived kind of the bottom. We weren't the rich area. Rex Putnam, I remember thinking of people that went to Putnam. Um, they were preppy snobs. Um, if you went to Oregon City or, or, or Canby, these were some truck-driving, corn-fed boys, you know? Uh, people that lived in Lake Oswego or went to Lake Ridge High School, we looked at them as like the rich, arrogant uh, you know, people, the, the ones that clowned us for being poor and we clowned them for being rich. And the, the sad thing is, is I didn't know any of them. I was making judgments based on a neighborhood or Gladstone High School. I literally thought like of Gladstone, that was the future of stoners and criminals. Clackamas High School, uh, we called it Clackatrash just simply just being teenagers or whatever. We were just jealous they beat us in every sport we ever played. Um, the first apartment I ever moved into, people were like, dang, you moved into the felony flats. 
You know, my rent was like $2.95 a month. And this would have been like a white area that was very poor. Then I moved, bought my first house. And people were like, man, you moved into the hood, right? We moved into a place called the Columbia Villa, right outside the Columbia Villa. And this was notorious for the CVC, the Columbia Villa Crips. And so people are like, man, that's dangerous there. It was actually one of the most peaceful places I ever lived, but there was a stereotype based on the neighborhood. All that to say this, you don't get to choose the family you're born in. You and I don't get to choose the neighborhood that we come from. We don't get to choose necessarily the demographic we were introduced to. The only person in history that could do that is Jesus Christ. He chose his family, he chose his demographic, he chose his neighborhood. In fact, he chose a neighborhood and a demographic. It was said, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. And, and one person said, man, what good can come from Nazareth? So think about this. This makes a lot of sense because we don't wanna rush the fact that this is the incarnation. It's not like God just materialized and became a person. Think about this. There was a process that pointed to a powerful implication theologically regarding the neighborhood, the family, and the demographic that Jesus chose to enter into so that he could be one of us to redeem all of us. The incarnation, it points to the fact that Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully man. And he would walk out this experience and he would pay a price for us so that we could be brought into life. I'm gonna close with this idea. You know, I've heard people say, going through a hard time, um, going through hell on earth, facing a death in the family, facing a battle that just seems um, emotionally insurmountable, hopeless. And, and they'll open up to somebody and they'll tell them. And then somebody that, that wants to comfort and wants to be there for them, they might say something like this, man, I feel your pain. Or, man, I'm so sorry, I can relate. I've been through some hard times too. But you know, there are some times that they can't really feel your pain and they can't actually relate because they've never been through something that hard. It's not that they're being mean or trying to be prideful or arrogant. They're just trying to be comforting and they're trying to empathize or sympathize with a person. And I've also heard people say this about God, literally in conversation. What does God know about me? God doesn't know what it's like to be raised without a dad. God doesn't know what it's like to suffer pain and be raised by a drug, drug addict. How, how can I follow a God who sits on his throne? I literally had somebody say this to me. How can I follow and believe a God who, if, he, if he's real, he sits in the comfort and the protection of heaven and where everything's perfect, everything's clean, there's nothing bad, and he, he doesn't understand what he put us into. How can, I re, how can I worship a God who can't relate with me? It goes to that saying, you know, walk a mile in my shoes. What does that mean? It means, hey, if you wanna understand me, then, then walk a mile in my shoes. If you could experience what I, would, what I experienced, if you went through what I went through, just a mile of it, you would understand more about why I do what I do and why I say what I say or why I am how I am. So did Jesus, did he walk a mile in our shoes? Why don't we walk a mile in Jesus' shoes in closing? Or just a few steps. When you look at the human experience of Jesus, the word of God, the reason why, became flesh, moved into the neighborhood, love closed the distance. God didn't make us come to him, he came to us. 
And then he says, I don't want to just come to you. I want to experience what you experience so you know I walked a mile in your shoes. So you know I do relate. So you know I do feel your pain. So how does he relate? He was born into a scandal. Would you believe a mom who said, oh, I got pregnant by the Holy Spirit? No, I promise. I was faithful to my fiance. I don't, literally, this baby just started growing in my belly and an angel came to me. Think about this. Like Jesus was born into a, a, a quote unquote, out of wedlock scandal. You know, people looked at them kind of sideways. You know, they had to be the talk of the town. Uh, how did this woman claim this? And I can't believe this guy, Joseph, is actually believing it. Uh, some of you have experienced bankruptcy, right? We hear the rags to riches story, but what about the riches to rags story? Somebody who lost it all. Jesus comes from the wealth of heaven and takes on the poverty of earth. And then he goes to heaven again and he invites us into that story so that we can be brought into his kingdom one day. He's born into a blue collar family, nothing special, very humble, no name town. He's raised by a carpenter. Um, he grew up under ethnic and religious oppression. You know that Jesus' dad, we don't know when, but he died sometime along the line. Some of you have grown up without a dad. You're raised by a single mom. Look, Mary was a single mom. For every single mom out there, Jesus understands your pain. Jesus understands because here's Mary who's raising at least seven children, five boys and at least two girls, maybe even more, because she's got a dead husband and she's struggling in this life. Family drama. His brothers, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in it and in fact mocked him. Sibling rivalry. It wasn't until later that they finally said, yeah, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. But early on, they didn't believe in him. Jesus was misunderstood. He was mocked. He was persecuted. He faced injustice. He faced accusation. He was bombarded with the expectations of other people. You know, some of you, you live under this pressure that people expect this of you, but you feel like God's called you to do this, or you have this interest. Jesus had the same thing. He lived under people's expectations. You know that he was used for his gifts? People followed him because he could turn, you know, anything into food. He could turn a little fish into a, into a feast. They didn't really want to hear his words, some of them. They just used him for what he had. Some of you get used for what you have. Jesus understands you. Jesus understands the, the pain of unanswered prayer. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go to the cross, but that prayer went unanswered and he actually had to go through with it. And finally, he paid for crimes he didn't commit. And I had a mom recently who was in a prayer circle um, before this quarantine kicked in and she breaks down in tears and she said, I'm just coming today with a heavy heart because I'm trying to forgive the person who killed my son. I know the guy who killed my son. And today I was just thinking about him and I'm wrestling with that forgiveness. You know that Mary watched her son brutally murdered. So does God feel your pain? He does. Does God understand you? He does. Does God get you? He does. Has he walked a mile in your shoes? He's walked a million miles in your shoes and he understands you. Why is this important in closing? Because even though he conquered death 
hell, and the grave. He overcame every temptation and he did not fall to the enemy's schemes. Jesus Christ became one of us to bring us into his neighborhood. He came to your neighborhood so that we can one day be brought into his eternal kingdom. But that only happens when you believe on the word of God who came to set us free. He provided a way out. The incarnation and the crucifixion, it, it points to the fact that God loved us so much that he would do all the work and we would just have to believe in it. I wanna invite you today. I don't know who you are. I don't know what, what you're dealing with. But today, you might be lost in sin. You might be struggling with an addiction. You might be bound in pain, but I want to invite you to put your trust in the one who paid for your redemption. Why don't you pray with me? So Father, today I pray for every person watching and I ask in Jesus' name that God, you would open hearts and open lives. And that for that person watching that has never been in relationship with you, I pray that they would believe today that you died on the cross, you rose from the dead, that you paid for their sins and that you forgive all who believe on you and who turn to you as Savior and Lord. We thank you that there's no sin great enough that you cannot forgive it. We thank you that you make us brand new in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. We love you. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, and share this message with somebody who might need it. Uh, we'll see you next week. God bless.